For the last three weeks, we've been in a series called Creation, Fall, Redemption. Ah, Creation, Fall, Redemption. Tonight is the last night of that series, okay? And the reason we did this is because this is kind of a, if you had to describe the Bible in three words, if you have to do the entire story of Christ in three words, it is those three, I think. Creation, Fall, and Redemption. So, quick kind of spark notes. Is spark notes still what you guys, not that you use it, but if you, if you had to, if you, you know, spark notes is this thing. So, Quick spark notes, right, through the last two weeks, and then we'll get into some new stuff, and then we'll be done, okay? So here we go. In week one, okay, we talked about creation. The fact that God made us, right, creation, the fact that God made us, and how that is not ridiculous to believe, contrary to popular opinion, right? Creation is not a ridiculous thing to believe. It has not been disproven by science. And I said this last time, this is not me bashing science or anything like that. They actually work together. It's a beautiful profession, right? But creation has not been disproven by science. In fact, according to the evolutionary biologist that we talked about two weeks ago, again, not Ryan, not B- minus in chemistry, B- minus in biology, Ryan telling you this, according to evolutionary biology, the deeper we get into science, the more complexities and the deeper we look and drill into this, the more and more the case for random evolution and the Big Bang begins to break down. But the Bible holds up. Creation has not only been dis... Has, has only... Let me back up. This is a weird sentence. Creation not only hasn't been disproven, but it actually makes sense when you think about it. And we won't get too deep into it. Again, go back to the podcast from two weeks ago. Humble plug there, right? PV and Students podcast. But the two things we learned about creation a couple weeks ago were this. One, how it makes no sense. It makes no sense that we as humans need personal relationships, literally, to survive. Not being dramatic. We need personal relationships to survive. We need friends and family and connection. It literally makes us less healthy when we have fewer connections. And this isn't according to me. This is according to the American Cancer Society and the American Psychological Association. They both have said extended periods of loneliness are actually destructive to our health. Extended periods of loneliness actually damage our health. We are literally wired. We are literally built. We are literally designed for relationships and human connection. Science tells us that if we don't have these connections, we will die faster. So then, how can we be rooted in or from an impersonal Big Bang or the result of impersonal evolution through chance or survival of the fittest if we are then rooted to need relationships. The two don't correlate. They don't add up. It doesn't make sense. Creation does. And then lastly, we discussed how creation is the only way to account for how all people are equal. We cannot have the same basic rights if we do not have the same basic source. Period. Right? Creation says we are inherently equal, regardless of financial status or physical ability, because before anyone was ever had ever earned anything or lost anything, we were made in the image of God. Creation makes sense scientifically. Creation makes sense politically. All the above. So, when your friends who have watched a three-minute YouTube video on evolution and they just get it now, when they come to you and they're like, well, scientifically it doesn't make sense, I don't know what they're talking about. Because scientists are the ones who are saying, the deeper we get into this, 
the more and more intelligent design holds up. This is what you say to them in a nice way, right? And this is maybe some of you think that. And again, if I say anything tonight that you're like, uh, let's wait until the end, let's chat, okay? Let's chat about it. Cool? All right, here we go. Uh, so that was two weeks ago, right? Last week, okay? okay? Last week we covered the fall. So creation, fall, right? How Adam and Eve, created by God in the Garden of Eden, began to doubt God's love for them. Satan came as an animal. We talked about this last week, right? Satan comes as an animal and attacks God's good order, tempting the woman first. Eve and Adam lost trust in God, and they saw him as someone who was limiting their freedom, so they rebelled against him, and the results were disastrous beyond their wildest dreams. Side note, this is a good reminder, right? This is a good reminder to us that true freedom, now listen, because this is the air you guys are breathing in your culture and in mine. This is a good reminder that true freedom does not come from being able to do everything that your heart desires. More on that in a second. Freedom is not total independence. It is depending on God's good design. Freedom is not total independence. Freedom is depending on God's good design. Freedom, and another example, freedom is not drawing your own life. Freedom is living inside of God's good canvas. Freedom is not drawing your own life. Freedom is living your life inside the bounds of God's good canvas. I want to live in space without a helmet, Ryan. That's what I want to do. I should be free to do that. You can want that all you want. But if you try to break that boundary, you ready for me to lose you in science here? You will die, right? You will, okay? Disaster, thank you, pain. Disaster will strike. Your body was not, now listen, now follow this, follow this. Your body, okay, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's going to break the mold here. Your body was not designed to live outside of God's boundaries. You can't breathe in space. You can't lift a mountain. You can't live underwater. You can't take more than two AP classes at once. Just kidding, right? Just shot across the bow there. Our bodies have, our bodies have a natural good design limit, right? Our bodies have a natural good design limit. If in the Bible... Our souls are represented by our bodies, okay? Our souls are represented by our bodies. So if our bodies were designed to thrive in the boundaries God gave us, it's the same for our souls. Freedom is not the same word as flourishing, to grow and to be fruitful. Freedom is not the same word as flourishing. If you want freedom, if you want the freedom to try to live in space without a helmet or try to stop a train heading for you, you can go for it, but you will not flourish in that freedom. Does that make sense? You will not flourish in that freedom. And in the same way, if your soul wants to break free from God's good design, to draw your own life outside of God's good canvas, you can try it. But it will only lead to disaster. Adam and Eve did this, and it was called the fall. It was called sin. They rebelled against God's good design, and so do we. Creation, fall, now the best one, redemption. This is the last word of our series, redemption, and this is the last word that God wants to leave on your life. This is what he wants your life to be characterized by, this word, redemption. Redemption is why we are here. Week in and week out. Not to just give you nice apologetic points to use. Not to 
teach you more about dating or even just to teach you more about the Bible or the political sphere or your family. The deepest reason you're here, the deepest reason we're here every single week is because we are working on what's called redemption. This is why I don't give you, when I'm up here, I don't give you a TED Talk or a motivational speech. Those are both great in their contexts, but the reason I talk from this book, the reason I try to share this book with you is because those two things that I just mentioned, they can make you feel all the feels and even change your behavior a little, but they cannot redeem you. Only Jesus can redeem you. Only this book can redeem you. In fact, and I wish someone had told me this when I was in middle school and high school, you can't even redeem you. You can't even redeem you. I looked up on Google today, right? It's amazing. There are 3,164 Christian songs with the word or theme of redemption in them. 3,164. That's one song per day for the next eight years. The word redeem or redemption is in the Bible 135 times. Redemption is a theme. It is the theme of Christianity. It's what Jesus came to do. And in that word is the whole message of the gospel, in the word redeem. Okay? If you're a type A or you're a note taker, you may want to listen to this part especially. Um, the word redeem, okay, redemption, to be redeemed, the word redeem is a Latin word that means to buy back. If your parents ask you what you learned and you say that, mom will tear up in the minivan. I, you have my word. Okay, So that's your ammo right there. To redeem is a word that means to buy back, to buy it back. So follow this. If you have been redeemed, if you have been bought back, right? Everyone loves it when, when Jason sings that song, Redeemed, in the sanctuary, right? If you have been redeemed, if you have been, if you have been bought back, this is what that means. Something else, someone else owns you, so you are then redeemed. You are returned to where you used to be. And that is by the purchase of someone else. So someone else had to spend so that you can be set free from what owns you. But notice, it's not complete independence. Remember, we weren't designed for that. Complete independence means that you will die. You were bought back. You now belong to the one you are supposed to belong to. They bought you back. Now you belong to who you're supposed to belong to. But what is this thing? Who is this person? Who is so bad that Jesus had to give his life so that he could buy you back from them. Who are you owned by that you must be set free from by the blood of Jesus? Yourself. Adam and Eve fell. They sinned. The image of God that we were made in now has a permanent stain on it. It is marked on their souls, deeper even than DNA. You are a combination of your parents' DNA. They are a combination of their parents' DNA. DNA, that nature, gets passed on. And this stain goes even deeper than that. 
even more impossible to remove than DNA. And this stain is on our hearts. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It'll be right here on the board. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, it may not be evil like supervillain evil, but evil meaning bent away from God. You're not, you, know, you, hit, you have a reflex. You can't help it. Our natural bent, our natural reflex is away from God. You know the old song, right? Um, come thou fount, come thou fount of every blessing. There's like four of you that are like, oh yeah. So it's called come thou fount of every blessing. In that song it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If you're prone to do something, it's a natural inclination. Does that make sense? And he says, let thy grace like a fetter. That's a chain. So he's saying, let your grace chain me to you. Because I'm prone to wander. We are now, Adam and Eve, because they sinned, they are now bent. Their hearts are bent away from God. And so when we're born, our hearts are bent away from the Lord. We have to be bent back now. If you don't believe Genesis 6-5, let's look at Psalm 51-5. Psalm 51-5. This is David. David knows his stuff, okay? David's a pretty gifted theologian. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It's wickedness. I was brought forth in wickedness. And in sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that David's mom did something sinful to conceive him. It means where he comes from is this bent away from God, this broken heart that is away from God. David is saying, from birth, from the beginning, I am bent away from God. Now, let's pause for a minute. It's funny how you look at some churches, and I'm not going to name names or whatever, but they do this kind of TED Talk thing or inspirational speaking thing where the pastor might get up and like, I just wrote an example, where like the crowd will start standing in the middle of the sermon and they'll be clapping and the pastor will say something like, you can do this. Your pain is part of the problem of God's provision in the providence. Every word starts with the same letter. People are crying. I just I don't get it. It doesn't make sense, right? This is how it all goes. And they're, they're trying to pump you up and get you excited to fix things so that you can fix things. You never hear, like on the YouTube and on in, the YouTube, whoa, on YouTube, sorry guys, sorry, on YouTube, on Instagram, like you never see clips of the pastors being like, your heart is wicked, even from birth, and everyone's like, yeah, like you never hear that, like you ne that's never like, like no girl ever posts on Instagram, my heart is wicked, even from the womb, like they never do that, right, no, just like, or guys, you get it, like that's never one of those things that we like to post about, we don't like this. We don't like this truth. We're not comfortable with this truth, but there it is in Scripture, plain as day. One more, and then let's get to the good stuff. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. Pastor Mac walked us through it a couple weeks ago. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart, your heart, my heart, the heart is what? Is more, what's that D word? The heart is more deceitful than all else. And it's not just sick, it's what? It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It doesn't say, apart from God, the heart is so full of potential and such a good dude deep down. It doesn't say that. Our heart is deceitful. Our heart is wickedly 
sick. Uh, one of my favorite movies, take it for what you will, one of my favorite movies is a uh, James Bond movie called Skyfall, right? Okay, it's called Skyfall. So, yeah, there you go, Will. Super cool. And long story short, this computer virus breaks out in this deal, and James Bond doesn't know what he's doing. And so his techie assistant, Q, comes in to solve the computer virus. And listen, this is what he says. He says, this virus is so tricky, it's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that's fighting back. It's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that's fighting back. And when I heard that, I thought, that is just a small example. Now imagine that, trying to solve a Rubik's Cube that's fighting you back. That's just a small example of what it's like to, for you to try to cure your own heart, to try to fix your own heart. You try to do this move and obey to fix your heart, and your heart just moves back against you. Some of the most well-behaved people in our churches are some of the most prideful people. Some of the people who are in church every week are some of the hardest ones to be around because you have tried to move your heart into, in the direction of obedience, and that's good, except your heart is broken. So it moves back against you. So with every obedient step, your broken heart gets a little more prideful, a little more accomplished, another Awana medal, a little more arrogant, another Sunday that you're here. And now, instead of being this humble, you become so, your heart, your obedience has literally made you worse, not better. Because your heart is broken and it can't do what it's supposed to do. And the more humble you get, the more prideful you get about how humble you are. There is no escape. Our hearts are evil and sick. They're working. Pastor Mac, like four weeks ago, he said, it's not a good idea to follow your heart. It's not a good idea because it's working. You wouldn't follow someone who you knew was against you. And your heart, we are born with our hearts bent away from God. Wanting to run away from God. Now, there's a reason that nobody gives a standing ovation when that is preached. Because we like to think that we can redeem ourselves. If I just really put on my bootstraps, if I really dig in here, I can redeem myself. But the definition of redeem is to be bought back. The whole vibe there is that you have no power in this. It's impossible to redeem yourself. You have your only hope, my only hope, is that the Master is merciful enough to buy you back. And He is. What is He buying you back from? Yourself. Let me tell you why self-help sermons never work. I was um, looking at the news a couple months ago because I'm just so cool like that. I was looking at the news, and you may have seen it. Uh, this is a couple months, like I said, it was a couple months ago. There's a hotel in Michigan, and the water pump for the hotel is on the roof of the hotel, all right? And the water pump, obviously, is what pumps the water and distributes the water throughout the hotel, in the showers, in the sinks, in the kitchens, all that good stuff. A bird has crawled up into the pump. Remember, it's on the roof, right? A bird has crawled its way up into the water pump and died there and was found rotting and decaying in the water pump for 18 days. 18 days. This water has been pumping throughout the hotel, in the showers, in the sinks, in the kitchens. Now, now here, listen, listen. 
The hotel was still pumping water, right? But it wasn't good. Because nobody can take water from a dirty pump. You want to know why New Year's resolutions never last? You want to know why you're working so hard and it's not getting any better? Because you're still pushing out water, but the pump is dirty. Now imagine how ridiculous it would be if I told you every week that, you know, picture the water thing. If I told you every week when you came here, just get, pour out the old water and just wait, get the new water to come. Pour out the old water and get the new. You would say, but Ryan, this new water doesn't matter because it's still coming from a messed up pump. Exactly. Here are five ways to help you with your anger. Here are five steps to make you a better leader. Here are five rules to help you find God's purpose for your life. Those things are fine and good in their own time. But all of those things are just buckets that are trying to swap out the water in your life. And no one is focusing on the pump. Our hearts are stained and contaminated and separate from God. We have to swap out the pump. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. I know you're in Ezekiel all the time, sorry. Ezekiel 36, 26. And it'll be on the board. There's no shame in using that table of contents. That's, I want you to. Ezekiel 36, 26. And remember, the problem in our lives is not so much our actions, but the well that our actions are being drawn from. The pump that gets the water out. Does that make sense? We need a new pump. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26. Here we go. This is the Lord speaking. Moreover, some of the best words in the Bible, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Finally, the root problem can be fixed because God reaches in and, and fixes your heart and gives you a new one. He pays the price to give you a new heart and free you from yourself. He buys you back from yourself. He gives you a new heart. That is redemption. He cleans the stain that Adam's sin left on our hearts. He takes your drawing that you've made of your life and he places it onto his canvas. And over time, he will add his colors and his lines and make you what you were supposed to be in his image all along. You wanted to be totally free. Draw your own picture. Make your own life. You wanted to be totally free. And instead of bringing peace and joy, it'll just maim and maul your body and soul beyond recognition. So God reaches in. Totally, you've done nothing to deserve it. We've done nothing to earn His attention, to earn His affection. But He turns to us anyway. And He reaches in and He puts your life, your broken, messed up, my broken, messed up life, and puts it on His canvas. And these boundaries and these lines that he draws that you used to think and that were so awful now start to bring peace and boldness and joy. Turn in your Bibles. Let's look at one more thing. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. If you're anywhere else in the Bible, you've literally gone too far, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. So this is where we've, we've been in Genesis 1 and 2 the last two weeks. Creation, Genesis 1, the fall in Genesis 3, right? The fall has happened. Adam and Eve have sinned, and now God is punishing Satan. Genesis 3, 14 and 15 here. But the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put, now this is God speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So Satan is being punished. And we're not going to look at it, but if you look right before these verses, in verses 10 through 14, God comes to Adam and Eve, and instead of coming in fire and thunder to destroy them, we talked about this last week, he asked them questions. Adam, where are you? Eve, what is this that you've done? He's trying to teach them. He's trying to get them to, sh to, to, to say what they've done, to work in this repentance. It could, it could be fixed. We can do this. And he tries to, to pull it out of them. But their sin, sin has ripple effects. I hope you know that. There's no such thing as just one sin. It bounces, however it works, it bounces back and affects you deeper. Because Adam blames it on Eve, right? Instead of taking responsibility, he blames it on Eve. And Eve, instead of taking responsibility, blames it on the serpent. They won't. There's no repentance. And he's asking them questions in love to try to draw this out. If you notice, he has no questions for Satan. There is only punishment. And the Lord said, and he gets into it. And look at what part of this punishment is. Look at verse 15 again. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This enmity, it's an SAT word, so just relax. Enmity means hatred or being actively opposed to something, being hostile to something. God is lovingly driving a wedge between Eve and Satan. Eve was tempted, right? Eve was tempted and drawn by the serpent's words. So God puts something in Eve's heart which makes her now repulsed by what Satan says, so that this won't happen again. And then 15 again, it says, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your children and her children. One of the marks of being a true child of Eve, a true son of Abraham, a true child of God, is this enmity in your heart towards Satan. A dislike for the things we are being tempted to do. God named his people in the Old Testament Israel. Israel is the Hebrew word that means to struggle, to wrestle. God's people, now listen, how do you know you're a Christian? Or not? How, what are some ways? Here's a way you can kind of begin to, to work with in your life. God's people are defined, literally, they're named after it. God's people are defined not by the absence of sin, but by a struggle against it. Does that make sense? God's people are not defined by the absence of sin. Not on this side, not yet. But they are defined by a struggle against it. We do not make peace with our sin. So often, to struggle means 
I do it a lot. I feel bad about it some. Therefore, I struggle. That's not what it means to struggle, to wrestle with your sin. Uh, one pastor, a guy named Danny Aiken, gave a sermon about pornography one time, and he said, you have to fight this thing like it's cancer. You have to fight this thing like it's cancer. Think about that. And not just pornography, but any sin. What's going on in your life that you've made peace with? Think about how radically your life would shift if you got sick like that. Over time in your life, if you are a believer, if you have a new heart put in you, over time in your life, God changes your heart to view sin with the same fear and hatred that you would view cancer. Oh my gosh, I did that? I've got to fight that? I need to apologize? I need to confess? Get this out of me? Where you used to, think about it, I mean, think about it. You used to be so bent to, I'm not going to apologize for this, I'm going to cover it up, I'm not going to say anything about it, and now you're trying to confess it more. Now you're trying to fight it more. Now you're running to your parents. Your, par your parents? Now you're going to them. Get this out of me. Help me fix this. And whatever it looks like in your life, that is a sign of grace in your life. Not the absence of sin so much as the presence of struggle against it. A wrestling, a fighting. I will not do this. Looking to, not, not just cold-hearted, empty obedience. We talked about that. But a love for Jesus that makes you not want to do this anymore. And being a Christian is not going to boot camp exactly or anything like that. Let me give you an example, and then we'll close. A guy named Perry Downs. Perry and his wife are foster parents. They had taken something like 20 children into their home as newborns and kept them until they were permanently placed in adoptive families. That's what they do. They take newborns, watch them, grow with them, wait for them to get loving families, and then we go to the next step, right? And one day, and this is a longer news article, so just kind of buckle in, and one day the state called them up and, and they said, we've got a little different situation here. We don't have a newborn, but we're wondering if you'd be willing to take this case. And he said, tell us about it. We've got two boys, twin boys. They're not newborns. They're 18 months old, but they'll only be with you for six weeks. Would you be willing to take them in? And Perry says, sure. Oh, and one other thing. These boys have been abused in the families they've already been with, 18 months old. In fact, they've been in nine different homes since they were born. And the psychologist tells us that their effects, their emotional response has been so deeply damaged by their experiences that they are very frankly abnormal in the way they respond to parents and adults. The psychologist isn't sure if they'll ever be right. And Perry says, we'll take them anyway. This is what happens. Well, the first night the boys are at home and Perry and his wife put them to bed. And they're down the hall. And Perry and his wife are in the living room and they hear something really strange. Nothing. Two 18-month-old twin boys in bed at 7.30, and they don't hear anything. That, that is strange, okay? That is odd. And they were curious, so they go down the hall, and the boys are in bed with pillows over their faces, muffling their sobs. Why? Because in some of the homes in which they had been before, whenever they cried, they were beaten. Those twin boys ended up being in the Downs home, not for six weeks, not for six months, but for well over a year. 
where they were loved on and cared for. And when they were placed in a permanent, loving, adoptive home, so happy ending, right? When they were placed in this adoptive home, the social worker and the psychologist had an exit interview with the Downs family. This is what they said. Something amazing has happened to these boys. They are responding effectively, emotionally, like healthy children ought to respond. What happened to those two little boys? They had experienced the love of God through these loving parents, and it had literally changed them, warmed them. Tim Keller says, ultimately, all sin is abuse. Private, public, others, yourself. You are being owned. How awful is this story, right? You are being owned. I am being owned by an abusive master, far worse. And it has impacted our hearts. We think we need our sins to survive. We've got to have them. And we are powerless to get out. But look at me. But you have been bought back by the one who traded his son as the price so that you could be removed from the abuse of sin and brought to the home of your loving father instead. You have been bought away from that horror. He doesn't spend his time trying to edit your behavior. He fixes your heart. He goes right to the pump and he gives you a new one. This is what it means to be redeemed to be a, in the best way, to be a helpless recipient of the grace of God. Undeserved, unqualified, brokenhearted, literally. And he reaches down in mercy, takes out the old heart, and gives you a new one. And we spend the rest of our life on earth experiencing his love as he warms us away from the abuse that we've put on ourselves. As he changes our heart. That's what redemption is all about. That's what Jesus came to do, to redeem you, to buy you back, to reverse your nature. And that's what we're going to be spending the rest of the semester learning about. So let's pray together.